The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. For some of you, you're thinking, wow, I was really looking forward to being encouraged in church today. <laughs> Had a bad enough week, and now I got this to layer onto it. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you're here, because my hope is that you will hear through the sermon in the richness of all the components uh, of the worship service as a whole, a movement of your soul uh, that allows you, as we've said already, to go into spaces that are very unfamiliar for many people, to go into places that are scary, to dive down and to deal uh, with God when He doesn't make sense, when we don't understand Him fully, when life and all of the things going on uh, seem to be against us. And so we go there, and for some of you, you're excited about that. You're like, finally, I don't have to be all up and happy and clappy and jumping and doing all that. There's a melancholy within Scripture, and I can resonate with that. And so it's a good place for you. For others of you, uh, the laments don't make sense to you, and I want to start in by way of introduction to the sermon by giving several reasons why even if you aren't currently experiencing a season where lament makes sense or fits into your life, the importance of beginning to include it as a regular part of your scripture reading, as a regular part of your meditations and of your prayer life. You see, we include psalms of lament even when we're not personally lamenting in order to weep with those who weep. You might not be lamenting now. You might not be going through a season of darkness and of difficulty, but I promise you within the context of these several hundred people who are here, there are some who are. And within the body of Christ worldwide, there are brothers and sisters that we have around the world who are caught in desperate lament. This seems like a joyful song in comparison to what they're going through. And we, the brothers and sisters of Christ here, need to know how to engage with them, to learn their language, as it were, so that we can minister to them, so that we can move towards them instead of that awkwardness of not knowing what to do when someone is sorrowful. We include psalms of lament even when we're not personally lamenting So that when seasons of mourning and difficulty come, and by the way, they will, that we would know how to engage God in the midst of our sorrow. It may be going really well for you now, and that's great. Celebrate it, but also be prepared in your heart that if and when things do turn and difficulties come, that you'll have a voice, that you'll have a language. How many of you have experienced difficulty in your life at some level? Raise your hands up high. Now look around. Keep your hands up. Look around. You're not alone. And if you didn't raise your hand, that's awesome. But it means that one day you probably will raise your hand. And so you need to be prepared for that. You need to have words and a framework for your sorrow and your pain. We include psalms of lament because it's biblical to do so. The Psalter has plenty of them included 
uh, that in, in the New Testament, Paul in Ephesians says that we're to include psalms in a way of engaging with one another. And that doesn't mean just the great psalms. It also means the psalms of lament, of how we minister one unto another. And then finally, we include psalms of lament, quite honestly, uh, because we should be lamenting more than we currently are. That for some, we should be lamenting more than we currently are. This is a caution to the chronically optimistic person. The person who is unable and unwilling to engage in difficulty. The person who is unable and unwilling to allow their own heart to deal uh, with tough things and they just smile it off. They just say, well, tomorrow is going to be another day. Or, or they uh, believe that, well, I'm just not willing to talk about that. That brings me down. I don't want to be sad like that. And the old Art Garfunkel song comes to mind, always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the bright side of life. Some things in life are bad. They can really make you mad. Other things just make you swear and curse when you're chewing on life's gristle. Don't grumble. Just give a whistle. Imagine when the diagnosis of terminal illness comes that giving a whistle doesn't make it all better. When a loved one dies, just as he says later, just purse your lips and whistle. That's the thing. It doesn't resonate deep within the soul. When your parents divorce and you're not Sure, which house you're supposed to go to this weekend because you don't remember where, uh, who has you that weekend. When you have a child wrestling and struggling with difficult things, just to purse your lips and whistle doesn't cut it. It's okay to be glass half full. It really is. But it's also okay to have a glass that's half empty because at times it's both. That we look for joy, we look for the goodness, but we also resonate with the sorrow. And for some of us, and some of you, we need to learn how to lament, to experience the fullness of life. Because life is, life is experienced on the extremes and in the middle. It's experienced on the mountaintops and the highs of really being excited and experiencing all the fullness of it. But it's also down deep in the valley when it's low and there are tears and there's confusion. And the fullness of life in between is what God's given us. For most of us, we want to take an antidepressant that's going to clip off the tops and clip off the bottoms. And we want to live somewhere in the middle of just getting by. I don't want to feel too much. Because if I get too happy, I'll just be sad again. And if I get too sad, I'm afraid I'll never come out of it. I'd rather just live sort of there in the middle. As Tim mentioned earlier, God didn't call us to live with a half heart. He lived, called us to live from a full heart. And a full heart experiences lament. And this lament that we're looking at today is a particular one in the scriptures. It's the only psalm, it's the only lament that doesn't have a turn at the end. It doesn't have the, but you, O God, are good. 
But you, O God, are good to Israel. But you, O God, are faithful in all of your words. But you, O God, are going to come riding in on the white horse tomorrow morning and you're going to defeat all of my enemies. But you, O God, I know that at the end of the day you win. This one ends. You've caused my beloved, my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Put down the pen. I keep thinking that maybe one day there's going to be a discovery in the Qumran community in a cave somewhere that the rest of Psalm 88 is going to come to light. The reason I actually don't think that's ever going to happen is because I don't believe it was ever written. Because God wants us to hear that sometimes there's no bow tied on the top of the package. Sometimes at the end there's not good news that the diagnosis is terminal. That the divorce is final. That life is filled with difficulty and trouble. And that we have to live within it, still within the context of a loving relationship with the Lord. So what are we able to learn from a psalm that we tend to avoid because we don't find wallowing and complaining a very good spiritual discipline? I'm going to give you a few things. One, we're going to learn about what's the general problem that humanity is faced with. Uh, What's the difficulty we're faced with? And the problem is this. Life includes seasons of weariness, depression, and distress. Most of you raised your hands, and you would have said by way of a silent Presbyterian amen. Amen. Life is filled with depression sometimes and weariness and distress. But there's a proper response that's given to us. There's an antidote. Uh, to the problem. You see, there's a cultural counterfeit antidote that doesn't work. Just purse your lips and whistle, and life will be fine. Just think happy thoughts. Just think positive, and everything's going to be good. But the Bible says, no, the proper response is we cry out to the Lord, who is our hope. We cry out to the Lord. And then the final thing is the assurance that we have of God's incredible promises. So the problem, the response and the assurance. So the problem, life includes seasons of weariness and depression and distress. John 16, when Christ is speaking to his disciples right before he is to go to the cross, he says, friends, in this world you will have trouble. You're going to have tribulation, your Bible may say. You're going to have suffering. You're going to have sorrow. Psalm 88 is a record of one man's sorrow and suffering in this world. And we should expect to have times of suffering in our lives. We shouldn't be caught off guard. It's incredibly important for us as Christians to have a theological framework that includes suffering. And suffering that's not caused by our own sin. It doesn't seem that Psalm 88 is driven by the psalmist, Haman, who has done something in his youth. He's been suffering for almost the entirety of his life. And he doesn't seem that he did something when he was 13. And God said, I'm just going to make the rest of your life horrible because of that. He's simply suffering. And for us as believers, we need to have a theology of suffering. So that when it comes, we're not shocked by it. We're not derailed by it. Many, many people leave the church 
in part, and they leave a relationship with God, in part because something catastrophic enters into their lives. They have no theology of suffering or difficulty or pain. And so when it enters in, they go, God, you must not be good. You must not be trustworthy. Because I don't understand why this is happening, yet it's happening, and therefore I can't be in relationship with you because I don't currently like you. And I'm leaving. And I'm gone. Instead of having such a profound depth of theology, of knowledge of who God is, of His Word, of His Scriptures, that when theology comes, you can say with honest assessment, I don't understand it. I don't know why me, but I also understand why not me. I don't understand why you haven't given me an answer, but I fully understand that I don't deserve one. That I don't stand on equal plane with you as my God and my Creator, and therefore I have little demand against you. So therefore I receive from you both good and bad. Blessing and curse. And I can still trust you because I know that you're good. You see, it's incredibly important to have a theology of suffering. To understand that it's part of this life. That's what Jesus was trying to say to the disciples before He left. He was going, I'm going away. And I'm not going to be here with you physically anymore. And I want you to know this. Tomorrow, I'm going to a cross. And I'm going to suffer. And I'm going to die. And I want you to understand that following Me, you do not get to avoid the same thing that I experienced. How could you think that? is what He was saying to the disciples and what He's saying to us. How could you think that if our Savior was the one who suffered, that those who follow Him, who have Him living in us, who take on His very life, would have no suffering? It's a very Western thought that we shouldn't have suffering. Go to almost any other place in the world and their theology of suffering trumps ours ten times over. That you go under uh, the overpasses outside of Buenos Aires and you're sitting there with believers on a Sunday morning uh, sharing a little bit of meal and they sing songs of joy to the Lord. Not of complaint, but of saying we're in this and we understand our impoverished state, but we know that what do we deserve in this life? But God's given us all things in His Son. You go to the shanty towns uh, and the townships of South Africa and you're there and you see our brothers and sisters in Christ in abject poverty, abject suffering, who understand that that's a part of life, not a surprise to a few who don't have enough faith. Listen to the litany of sorrow that this psalmist, Amon, experienced. Wouldn't it have been great to be a buddy with Amon? Amon, how are you? How's your day? Well, I'm suffering terrors. I'm helpless. The wrath of God sweeps over me. My eyes are dim from sorrow. I'm full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. I'm going down to the pit. I have no strength. I'm like one who sets uh, one set uh, among the dead, like slain that lie in the ground. I'm like those whom you remember no more, God. I'm cut off. I'm in the depths of the pit. I'm shunned by my friends and my loved ones. In the regions of dark and deep is where I inhabit. I'm shut in with no escape. Wrath lies heavy on me, overwhelmed by the waves of God's judgment. Horror is my companion. I'm close to death, afflicted and assaulted. How's your day? Uh, Good. It's good. Got to run. 
Amon's life was overwhelmed with sorrow. And he was a student of his soul enough to be able to give words to it. That he understood it. And he understood that he wasn't facing something new. Verse 15 says, I've been experiencing this since my youth. This is something that's been going on for his entire life. And he is now dying. This is the writing of a terminally ill man who is writing these words. And he's facing the grave. And the greatest sadness within this psalm is that he has an improper and a small view of life after death. So many Jews did in his day and even in the New Testament. David understood that there was something beyond the grave. When he said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, uh, that you are there. I can enter into death and I know that you are greater uh, than death. But for Amon in the New Testament, he most likely would have been a Sadducee. Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believed that once you died and went to Sheol, the place of the dead, that was it. It was over. And you see that Amon had a small view and a misunderstanding of death when he asked God these eight questions within the psalm. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared to the grave? Is your faithfulness declared to Abaddon, which means the place of ruin or despair or desolation? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Is righteousness known in the land of forgetfulness? Because when you're dead, how do you remember anything? Why did you cast me away? Why are you hiding your face from me? The writer was losing hope. He was losing heart because he had no proper view of the grave. He didn't understand uh, that there was life beyond the grave. That it didn't just all end when you closed your eyes uh, in this life. I think that's in part why it was so shocking and amazing uh, when Peter, James, and John uh, were with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration and they're standing there. And do you remember who showed up uh, on the scene? But it was Elijah and it was Moses. The law and the prophets uh, were there. And I can imagine part of them with their truncated view of death and of the grave and of the afterlife went, it's Elijah! He's actually alive! I thought he clipped off. He got on some chariot and was gone. And he was over. And that's Moses. You mean that there's life after death? Maybe this is what Jesus has been talking about. That the grave isn't the end. That it's not the final say. That death isn't the final arbiter. Huh? That's amazing. But for Amon, he didn't have that. He was like a sweet older saint in my previous church when I went to visit her in ICU. And she was dying and her hours were close. And I held her hand and she said, Bill, I'm afraid. I said, what are you afraid of? He said, I'm afraid to die. I said, well, let's talk about something. You know Jesus as your Savior, right? I do. I've known him for most of my life and walked with him. And you know that he died and rose again from the dead and that he's conquered the grave, right? He goes, I do. I said, you know that when you close your eyes here soon, that when you open them, they'll be in his presence. 
And that sound that you hear will be his hand turning the key in the door, opening up eternity to you in the presence of all of the saints. And his father's house has many rooms in that mansion. You know that, right? She goes, I do. I said, so what are you afraid of? She goes, I guess I'm not. She passed away the next day at peace because she had a proper understanding of death. She had a proper understanding of what life after this life is to be like. That when you die, immediately you will be in my Father's kingdom. Immediately we will be in his presence. Oh, I wish Amon had that. Maybe it would have helped shape some of his thoughts. You see, there's no reasonable explanation given. And another, so Amon had a truncated view of death, but he had a grand view of God's sovereignty. He viewed and he said, God, there is no reasonable explanation why I'm suffering all of these things. It doesn't make sense to me, but at the same time, I'm not demanding it per se. I'm in the middle of it. You see, there's a sense in which our theology and our theological framework has to also say that God doesn't have to give us a reason. He doesn't owe us that reason. And some of us would say, yeah, but when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him why this happened. My estimation is maybe you can, but I have a feeling that you'll be so overwhelmed by the glory of his presence that all of those questions will seem silly and superfluous at the end. That you'll go, you know what? Here's what I think. All of the sufferings of this world are little in comparison to the glories that await me with him. I count them as nothing in comparison to the immeasurable greatness and glory of Christ Jesus. You see, the psalmist knew that God was and was convinced that God was the source of all things. He said, you put me in this place, God. And by the way, that's proper theology. You, you put me here because you had the ability uh, to put me not here, but you put me here in the midst of this suffering and you're in control of all things. You are uh, the first source of all things. Therefore, you're the one. And so I believe and have a theology that's large enough to have pain and suffering included in it. You see, this psalm is included in Scripture to remind us that we do not necessarily know what God is accomplishing through our suffering, but know that he's accomplishing something. It harkens back to Job. Some theologians and scholars believe that Amon is actually the writer of Job. The language is so similar at times that they think maybe Amon was the historian who wrote Job's story for him because he looked and he realized, I don't know what God's accomplishing, but God's accomplishing something. Job had no idea that what God was accomplishing was a direct face-to-face challenge with Satan to say, Satan, not one of the godly will ever fall away. Someone who has tasted and seen of my goodness will never, ever turn from me no matter what happens to them in this life. Then Satan says, I bet you. And he said, look and consider my servant Job. And Job lost his family. He lost his wealth. He lost his reputation. He lost his health. He lost everything except his faith in God. And God looked at Satan and said, see, I told you. Did Job have any clue what was going on? That he was in the midst of a cosmic battle? Of course not. But Job said, from ashes did I come and from ashes will I return. But praise be to God. That God is all that I need. So a couple of questions for you. 
Can you relate to Amon at all? Do you have a place where you can relate to him and go, I relate? Or I'm in relationship with someone who does. Do you know others who can relate to him? Are you willing to honestly assess what's going on in your life, the effects of the fall in the world, and then to engage with others who are there? Because, folks, here's what doesn't work well. So, how are you? Good. You? Good. Well, I mean, marriage is teetering on divorce. Bankrupt. Children are a mess. I've got some pretty massive addictions. Uh, Splitting headaches. About to lose my job. But I'm good. You? Deep community within church and life together within church is honest engagement with one another. It's entering in. And by the way, when you ask someone, how are you doing? Are you willing to actually hear the answer? I grew up in a, in a mixed family. My father was from Alabama. My mother was from New Jersey, New York. And so dad spent most of his time hemming and hawing around an issue, uh, trying to get to it. And my mother just blew through the front door. And so mom would be at a good southern church, and someone would go, Maggie, how are you? She knew they didn't really care, but she went into it anyway. Well, Billy's a mess right now, and we've been praying for him, and his sister's good. And and the person glazed over, and she goes, oh, you didn't really want to hear this, right? And it's like, no. (laughs) They didn't. Folks, we we don't want to be that kind of church. We want to be the kind of church that says, how are you? And you're willing to listen. I'm not well. My heart's breaking. I'm overwhelmed with terror. I'm tired. I'm barely hanging on. So appreciative of you asking. Uh, TMI? Too much? Go see Bill the pastor. Don't send everybody to me. (laughs) Honestly, I'm glad to meet with you. But here's what we really need. is you ministering one to another within the midst of the pain of the lament that's there. And then learning from that, what do you do with it? We've got to move. Uh, What do you do with it? Where do you go with that lament? We understand the pain. Well, the response should be we cry out. That's what the psalmist did. We cry out to the Lord. There's passion and honesty and volume uh, to our prayers to the Lord. We don't remain silent in suffering. We don't just sit quietly, uh, but we give voice to it. Again, Tim asked the question, when's the last time you shouted? I'll ask it a little different way. When's the last time you cried out? Crying out isn't anything quiet. If you uh, are in a house fire and you're trapped in it, what are you going to do? Um, excuse me. I know you're busy and walking down the street, but I'm burning to death in here. If you don't mind engaging with the front door, that'd be awesome for you to come. No, you're going to go, help! Some of you just woke up. Welcome back. <laughs> We're in point two, our response to why we cry out. We scream. We cry out. It's visceral. It is deep. It's guttural from deep down. And I want you to understand that's okay. I want to give you freedom to cry out to God. I want to give you permission, clear conscience, to yell to the God of the universe and say, God, incline your ear to me. And God, listen, God of my salvation, the God who saves. God, I need you to remember the salvation that is mine through Christ. I need you 
to hear me. You see, the psalmist begins by saying, you're my salvation. He had a prior relationship with God. The psalmist was convinced that God was the one who put him in this situation. Therefore, God would be the reasonable one to get him out of it. And so he cried out to God. There was a regularity to his prayers. Day and night, he calls upon the Lord. He is convinced that the Lord is listening to him because he said, incline your ear to me. You're a listening God. You're a hearing God. And you hear my cries. You hear my prayers. You hear me when I come with hands open before you. Why open hands? God, I'm presenting to you that I have absolutely nothing All I'm bringing is the barrenness of my soul. But I'm bringing it to you because you're my source. You're my hope. You're the one that I can speak to because I've talked to people in the church and they don't know what to do. I've talked to friends and neighbors. They look at me like I'm maligned. I understand the last verse. My friends shun me. Even in church, uh, there's a little saying that is sad. It's called EGR. And you'll see someone and you'll go, that's an EGR, extra grace required. See that person coming towards you, you're like, how can I figure out how to go that way? Or you pick up your phone and pretend that there's a call. Sorry, I can't get to you right now. Yeah. You feel shunned. God would never shun you. And there's a persistence in this prayer that takes us back to Luke 18, where the widow is coming, and in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected him, respected man. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And Jesus said, "Hear hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night, similar language? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Do you have a persistence in your prayer? Is your response a once vomiting of words and then silence? Or are you crying out regularly to the silent God? And crying out to him to say, speak, I need to hear from you. And if you're waking, waiting for some audible voice, you most likely will be waiting for a very long time. Because the manner in which God most often speaks to His children is by the power of His Spirit working within us, leading us to His voice. The very breathed, inspired Word of our God which we need to be devouring in our lives, hiding within our hearts, knowing that when we go into a difficult place, there is a reservoir that the Holy Spirit taps into and it flows out like a geyser within us, which says, God, I am overwhelmed. And we hear this voice, come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble at heart, and you'll have rest for your soul. God, I'm like a reed. I'm just about to break. I would never break a bruised reed, and I would never snuff out a a flickering flame. Those words that bring uh, peace to our hearts, invite us in deeper, come from His Word. Parents, that's why you should be teaching and hiding the Word of God in your children's hearts. 
Men and women, hide it in your heart so when these seasons come, you pull out from it. You cry to a silent God who says, I'm actually not silent. I've spoken and it's here. And you can hear from me every moment of every day. Are you willing to be persistent in your prayers to this God? And then finally this. There is a problem, yes. There is a remedy that we pray. And here is the assurance and hope uh, as we take that remedy to heart. We have God's incredible Incredible promises. Some of the promises that are taught to us in Psalm 88, we have a relationship with a God who saves us. God is your salvation and your strength. God is the one who has taken your life from the pit and put it on the rock. God is your hope. He is the one who saves. We know that we have a God who listens to us even if we don't see or understand His response. We know that we have a God who has a purpose for everything in our life, for all of our suffering. And I know that for some of you, you're hearing that and you go, no. Because I've sat with you over the years. And I've heard you say, how can God have a purpose for that father who would walk into my room at night and abuse me as a little girl? You're telling me God has a purpose in that. You're telling me God has a purpose when my father walked out when I was 13 and I haven't seen him since. You're telling me that there's a purpose in life that I've suffered for so long. You're telling me that there's some purpose? The answer is yes, I am. I don't know what it is except in the broad category of God saying the best and best high thing is his glory and for our good. And I don't know how he uses evil in the midst of that. But I know this, it's better than all the alternatives. That it's blind fate. That it's chance. That it's karma. That is positive or negative feelings in the world combusting together in the midst of your soul and somehow something's going to happen? Or is it a God who we can know and not fully understand them? Who says, I am good. And I love you. And I have you. And one day, it'll all make sense. And one day, I'll gather up every tear and I will heal every scar and I will minister to every deep wound and you will have a wholeness if you trust me in this life and believe in me in this life. It won't all make sense. I promise you that. But you can trust me at the end game, in the middle of it. And then we have something that Amon didn't have. We have the New Testament. We have what he was looking towards in Christ who said this, hey, you know, guys, you're going to have difficulty in this world. Do you remember the, the rest of that line? But I've overcome the world. Amen. Yes, you're suffering, but I overcome the world. And this suffering is only for a fleeting moment. If I was to put a string across this worship center and put on it a little black dot that represented your life, that is the span of your life within eternity. And it says, for a little while you may suffer. Any of you who've suffered know that it doesn't feel like a little while, does it? It feels like an eternity. But God said, it's just for a little while. And I've overcome the world. And that I am going to be with you even until the end of the age. And that in my Father's house are many rooms. And that I care for you and will take care of you. And that I will return. And when I return, all of those who have perished will rise to life again in fullness of life 
in my presence. We know the end story. And that helps us get through all that we're doing. So friends, do you know the hope of your salvation? My invitation to you today is if you don't, let me introduce you to Christ. Who gives you a hope. Who says, I suffered and you'll suffer too. But I suffered so that your suffering will only be for a season and not for an eternity. And I've risen to glory so that you will have an eternity of glory in the presence of my Father and all of those who've gone before you. And that you are currently now, those of you who are wrestling through life, those of us who are wrestling through life, guess what you have around you? You have a witness of all of the saints cheering you on, going, we suffered too, but it's worth it. Keep fighting the good fight. We're here. And if you're here and you know Christ as your Savior, my invitation would be to live from the full heart. Allow yourself to go in places you don't normally go.